I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. Hey there, True Crimers. Hey, everyone. Hope everybody's good. You good, Kim? I think so. It's late. I think so. I have like a sinus issue, but other than that, I'm all G. Yeah. Can never breathe properly, so it's no. fine. <laughs> and we don't have any goss because we're recording straight after the last one that was just out. That way, hopefully, I can edit it quickly and get it out to you as soon as possible. And look, Kimberly's stories are always horrible and gross <laughs> and way too graphic, so... I I leave so much stuff out though. Do you? Yeah, like this probably could be. This is now a third part. This could probably be four parts. But it's like you just physically can't add everything in. Thank goodness, because some of them details are just nasty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Alrighty, we yes. get into it then. Yes. Um, confession time. <laughs> this is just where I've broken it off into a section that it starts to become where they confess. So. She's got a cave first, I reckon. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. So, Clark berated Bundy all the way home, blaming her for all of their troubles. He told her he was leaving the apartment on the first of the next month. Soon after arriving back at the apartment, Clark and his girlfriend went out without telling her where they were going. At 5.45pm, she called her mother-in-law's number, Carmeletta told Bundy that she was planning to fly the boys home on the 20th of August, but she told her not to. She told Carmeletta that her life was a mess at the moment, but maybe in a couple of months everything would be all right again. No, it won't. Mm, No. She spoke to both of the boys briefly, telling them that she loved them. Then she called Keith at 6.10pm to tell him of all the details of the murders and her involvement in them. He thought she was making it up as an excuse to call him again. Writing another story. (laughs) Told her not to come to Portland to see him. To help her sleep, she took her last handful of Librium tablets. I'm not sure how many is in a handful, but I'm pretty sure you shouldn't take that many. (laughs) In the morning, as she dropped Clark at the Jurgens factory, he verbally abused her. By the time she arrived at the Valley Medical Center, she was late for her 7 o'clock shift. At 8.45 a.m., Bundy rang Gaze to ask again whether or not she could come to Portland. He told her bluntly that he didn't want her to come and there was no way that he wanted to be in a relationship with her again. By 10.30 a.m., she had lost complete control. She walked into the nurse's lounge where her supervisor, Leanne Lane, and the head nurse, Howard Wernhoff, were taking a break. As Bundy started talking, Leanne Lane, well used to her ranting about her boyfriend problems, tried to ignore her. But her words began to sink in and Leanne was gripped by fear. As she told of the murders she and Doug Clark had committed, Leanne knew it was true. As suddenly as her confession had begun, she left the room, muttering that she couldn't take it anymore. She said she was going home to call the police to tell them everything. Hmm. 
The two nurses ran to the office and called the police. Within minutes, the upper floors of the buildings were sealed off and surrounded, but she slipped from the building through the basement where she had gone to get changed. On the way home, she stopped at the Jergens factory to tell Clark that she was turning herself in. She offered him the rest of her money so that he could get away. Clark had a better plan than running. He called Detective Pider to renounce the alibi he had given for Bundy. He said that she had been out the night that Murray was murdered. Oh my goodness. And had returned home while the paramedics were still there. He explained to Pider that she was very weird. <laughs> Back at the apartment, oblivious of Clark's betrayal, she called information to get the phone numbers of three homicide divisions. She rang all three of the numbers, all which were busy. When she finally got through to Burbank Division, she was given another number to call. Eventually, she got through to Detective Kilgore at Northeast. She told him of all of the murders and that she wanted to turn herself and her boyfriend in. Bundy wanted to meet him somewhere after she called the Van Nuys and Burbank police. They agreed to meet at 2 o'clock, the earliest time he could get a car. They didn't get to meet, as before she had even hung up, the police arrived on her doorstep. Mm-hmm. Detective Spider and Landgren had rushed to the medical centre when the call came through of Bundy's confession. When they found she had already left, Landgren went to her apartment while Pida went to see Clark at work. It was just on 11.30am when the workers began filing out of the factory to take their morning break. Pida stood, watching as Doug Clark approached him, smiling confidently. As they shook hands, Pida took a pair of handcuffs, placed them on his wrist, and took him to the awaiting unmarked squid car. Love it. (laughs) When they arrived at the apartment, two blocks away, the street was filled with police cars. Clark was left in the car with an ununiformed officer. He became increasingly agitated as the two detectives stood talking outside the car. He yelled to them and warned them that Bundy had a 12-gauge shotgun. Landgren was already inside, and instead of a shotgun, he came to the door holding underwear that she claimed belonged to Clark's victims. Once she had started talking, she could not stop. As Landgren attempted to read her her Miranda rights, she babbled right over the top of him. Frantically, she collected as many items of evidence of the crimes as she could. They were taken separately to the Van Nuys police station, where they were held until detectives involved in the Sunstrip murders task force had arrived. While Lero Orozco, Rick Jackers, Mike Stolkup and Gary Broder were leaving in the helicopter, Landgren read Bundy her Miranda rights, finally, like, without her. Rambling Rambling over the top. She told him that she would remain silent until she had some advice from an attorney. Too late, love. I mean, I think you just told them everything already. When the task force detectives arrived, Mike Stolkup took the bullet she had surrendered back at the apartment, back to the downtown station for testing. As they waited for the results, Broder and Jack questioned Bundy while Orozco monitored the interview from outside. She immediately talked openly about Clark 
who she stated did not force her to do anything against her will. In graphic detail, she described the murders, her involvement with the Murray, Clark's sexual fantasies, and his, quote, games with the 11-year-old girl. She confessed that she had really enjoyed the killing. As the interview ended, Carol told Broder that she was sexually aroused by him and wondered if he might feel the same. <laughs> Not the right time, love. Oh, Carol. Not in an interview. Carol. The three detectives, all well experienced, had never met a woman like Carol Bundy. No. She's definitely one of a kind. Thank God. Mm. Clark had been kept in a holding cell until nearly six o'clock that evening. When they took him downtown in an unmarked police car, he talked incessantly in the back of the car with Mike's door cup. He was smiling, cocky, and arrogant. Tired of hearing Clark's voice, Orozco told him to shut up until they got to the station. At the station, they took him into an interrogation room. While someone went to get Clark some cigarettes, they Mirandized him and offered to get him an attorney. He chose to talk without an attorney present and the proceedings were recorded. He talked for three and a half hours. Orozco opened the questioning lightly, asking for details about his family and history. Orozco knew the game Clark played and would play along to his own advantage, making it seem like Clark was in control. By the end of the interview, he had admitted a heap. He said he had known the victim, Cindy Chandler, well, that he had helped Carol dispose of Jack, of Murray's head, that he went with prostitutes and frequent sunset trip regularly. When questioned about his sexual abuse of the 11-year-old girl, he accused her of seducing him. Mm-hmm. When, yeah, 11-year-old girl. Like, oh, a child. Like, no, you can control yourself. She's a child. When they told him that they had a photo out album of him and the girl, he paled. It didn't take him long to work out that it had been Carol who had given it to them. He had already denied anything but a platonic relationship with Carol, who he said was crazy. At 10.20pm, Clark signed a consent form for the police to search the apartment in his presence. They took a pair of handcuffs and 29 live rounds of ammunition from the drawer next to Bundy's bed, stained clothing and a carpet fibres, four pairs of his boots, two shotguns and a pile of pornography and bondage magazines. From Doug's file cabinet in his bedroom, Orozco took a clipping from the Valley News about Exie Wilson's murder, another pair of handcuffs and a textbook, with photo with a photo of a severed penis in it. Yuck. Oh, a severed penis in the mouth of a head, which was impaled on a stick. Ah, <sighs> yeah. I I don't have words for that. Nope. When they returned to the station, Orozco booked Clark into county jail on felony molestation charges. As he looked through his wallet, he found further material, which Roscoe hoped would link him to some of the crimes. Over the ensuing months, the Sunstrip Murderer Task Force worked overtime to obtain all the evidence they would need to charge the two with murder. 
And at this time, Clark was telling many versions of the, his side of the story. He insisted that Bundy was setting him up for the murders that she and Jack Murray had actually committed. It's pretty smart, really, because <laughs> Murray can't defend himself. Yeah. It was a story that had been easy for police to rule out since Jeanette was able to find proof of his whereabouts for three of the murders. <laughs> In his rented garage, they had found bloody footprints, the impression of which had matched perfectly with the soles of the boots Clark was wearing when he was arrested. In Carol's Datsun, they found a broken gear shift. There were three holes in the passenger panel behind which they retrieved a twenty five caliber bullet. A seat cover and a cushion on the passenger side were saturated with what appeared to be blood, uh-huh. and the, quote, kill bag was in the trunk. Two twenty five caliber Raven automatic guns were found hidden in the Jurgen factory. One was nickel and the other chrome. The latter gun was linked to all of the known victims except for Jack Murray. Oh. When the Buick was located, there were bullet holes in the driver's seat and the back seat. There were two twenty-five caliber bullets and a twenty-five caliber casing on the floor and a pair of women's black vinyl gloves. Traces of blood found on the carpet and on the front passenger side, the right rear seat and the right rear floor mat were later matched to Karen Jones and Gina Morano. Bundy's story was further verified when the remains of the woman dumped at the water tower were found on the 26th of August, 1980. She would be known as Jane Doe number 18. The bullet found in her skull was linked to Doug Clark nickel raven gun. Two days later, the mummified remains of a woman were found. She was known as Jane Doe number 99 and had been the victim whose dump site Clark had showed Bundy during one of their drives in July. The bullet that had killed her was a twenty-five caliber with the same characteristics as that which had killed Jane Doe number 18. The remains of Kathy's body were not found until 3rd of March 1981, nearly seven months after they were arrested. Bundy was now charged with two murders. As they awaited their hearings, they both began to write lots of letters. To each other. <laughs> Bundy wrote to everyone she knew, justifying her position as a poor housewife who had been driven to the edge. <laughs> she wrote to Clark, avowing her undying love for him, and even wrote a love letter to Detective Broder, <laughs> <laughs> who she was sure was attracted to her. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I bet he was real happy about that. (laughs) Clark would write letters to his many girlfriends, declaring his innocence, and Bundy and Jack Murray's guilt. Are they set up? Obviously. I mean, all that evidence is just, like, I don't know how that got there. (laughs) He was able to continue a degree of influence over Bundy through his letters. Sweet talking her one minute and then promising to bring her down in the next. He even had a cellmate begin writing to Bundy so that through him he could direct her actions. Psychological examinations of Bundy were performed by doctors Pollock and Kangemi. It would take five months before they finally made the submissions to her defence attorney, Sam Mayerson. 
They described her as a, quote, condescending and controlling personality who projected the blame of her own circumstances onto others. She had an average to high IQ, but they believed that her true potential was in, was probably in the superior range. They found that there was no sign of organic brain dysfunction or any indications of gross psychopathology. The murder of Murray was most likely an explosion of anger, frustration and resentment over his abuse, betrayal and rejection. In their opinion, Carol Bundy did not qualify for any insanity or diminished capacity defence. Clark openly despised any figure of authority involved in his case. To his own detriment, he insisted on having the right to defend himself. Oh, don't they all the nuts? I know. Morons. He successfully delayed the legal process for months with his complaints about his defence counsel, Carl Henry. He claimed that Henry was not representing his interests properly, even before the time of his arraignment. He had proven such an impossible client that the court released Henry from any obligation to Clark and replaced him with Paul Geragos. Even with a new attorney, Clark continued to refuse to submit himself to the counsel's advice and requested that he be, he be allowed to assist Geragos with his defence. Judge Keane would not give his permission. By the time the trial commenced, Clark had rejected Geragos, who was then replaced by Maxwell Keith. Now, how much does this cost in the state? Who, I don't even know. Like, it's crazy. Judge Ringer finally had enough of him and asked that the case be transferred. He's like, I cannot deal with you. (laughs) Throughout the preliminary proceedings, Clark would also make complaints about the legal system and accuse the police of fixing evidence. He claimed that tapes police made of his voice were fabricated in order to gain positive voice identification from Mindy and Larry Briggs, another contact of Cindy's whom Doug had called. Orozco was accused of planting the shell casings found in the back seat of the Buick. It took more than two years for Clark's case to come to trial in October 1982. Robert Jorgensen prosecuted the case with Leroy Orozco assisting him. Judge Torres was presiding judge. Doug had succeeded in his request to represent himself. Oh no. <laughs> with the assistance of Maxwell Keith. Time and time again, he demanded his own course with temper tantrums, outbursts, and arguments with the judge. I object. <laughs> he had destroyed any credibility he may have had in the jurist's eyes. Having no real understanding of the intricacies of the legal processes, he left himself and his, his witnesses open to severe cross-examination and missed many opportunities to weaken the prosecution's case during his own cross-examination. Carol Bundy had appeared as a witness for the defence, but was unable to exert the same level of control over her as he had in the past. Her story of the events up until Murray's murder remained mostly the same as it had in the beginning. Her testimony, combined with the corroborating evidence presented by the prosecution, were enough to destroy Clark's weak defence. The jury began its deliberations on the morning of Friday 21st in February 1983 and passed the verdict of guilty 
on the morning of the 28th of February, 1983. At the end of the first day, only two jurors were in favour of acquittal, the majority believing it was an easy guilty verdict. For the remaining five days, they would review all the evidence presented during the trial. They agreed that Carol Bundy was a credible witness who was just one of many women over whom Doug Clark had exerted control. Their verdict was announced to the courtroom that day. Clark looked at his mother and ex-wife, who were together in the courtroom. He said, hi, mum, and winked. (laughs) The penalty phase of his trial was the opportunity for both the prosecution and defence to present evidence not normally allowed during the trial. It was an important part for Clark, as it would be determined whether or not he would go to the gas chamber. Well, hopefully he does. Both of Doug's parents were questioned and denied any knowledge of behavioural problems in his early life. Laura E. Keyes, M.D., who had spent over a 100 hours evaluating, gave psychiatric testimony. Clark was opposed to her testimony and would object over minor details throughout the one and a half days she was on the stand. Keyes described him as a narcissistic, manifesting itself in grandiosity, putting other people down and having a shallow capacity to relate to others. He was also what she termed, quote, antisocial personality traits, which included impulsivity, social norm deviation, and a job performance problems. Clark had very low self-esteem, but a strong denial that there was anything wrong with him. She diagnosed him as having a personality disorder, a number of psychosexual disorders, and shared paranoia. During his testimony, he expressed his belief in his own superiority over anyone who had been in a position of authority during his life, including the lawyers in the courtroom. On Tuesday 16th, February 1983, the death penalty was handed down for six counts of murder. While still on death row, he married Kelly Kensington. She would publicly protest. On 2nd of May 1983, the day that Carol Bundy was to go to trial, she withdrew her not guilty by reason of insanity plea and pled guilty to two charges of first-degree murder. By doing so, she escaped the gas chamber and was instead sentenced on 31st of May 1990 to two consecutive 25 years to life terms in state prison, plus an additional two years for the illegal use of a gun. It was the maximum possible sentence, and her first eligible parole date was in 2012, with the prison system having the option to keep in for life. She was transferred to the California Institution for Women at Frontera. She would continue to support Doug Clark in his fight to prove his innocence, even though he would continue to discredit her. In 1990, she handed over all her legal and psychiatric files to Clark's lawyers to help him. This is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, she, I know. She's still, like, doing everything she can to help this guy. When asked why she still wanted to help, she would say that she still liked him, although she could not say why. And Bundy died in prison from heart failure on December 9th, 2003, at the age of 61. Mm. And 
from I all I can find on Clark is that he's still on death row. Wow. And that's yeah, that's all I found on him. Still fighting to get off. Yeah, so and that's it. That's the end. Well that was horror. Absolute horror as yeah. usual. And that one's a pretty short one, it really only goes for like half an hour, but that is yep. the conclusion. The conclusion of that horrible tale. Well, I'm going to be doing something lighter. Are you? Funny, dumb, stupid. What are you doing? Just stupid, stupid crimes and criminals. Oh, really. that sounds good. That'll yeah. that'll bring us up again. Yeah. Because no doubt I'll, I'll bring it right back down. It'll just bring us right back down again. I don't mean to. I just, yeah, I do. I know you do. All right. Well, we better go to bed. Yep. It's getting late. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see, everyone. see you again soon. Yep. Bye. I don't even know what day it is. No, we have no idea. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us at Facebook at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky, on Twitter at hashtag or solved, Instagram at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. You can email us at podcast at solved, unsolved or spooky.com. And if you want to support the show, go to Podfan. And find Solved, Unsolved or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Mm -hmm.